We are going to focus on joy today, and if you look at your bulletin, um, the sermon is entitled, Our God Has Come, and the text is Luke chapter 2, and what ends up happening is most people will turn to Luke chapter 2, and they're anticipating, I'm going to teach out of Luke chapter 2, however, this morning's a little different. I had to pick a verse, I mean, you can't just have a bulletin with no verse on it, so that's the one I chose, because it's Christmas, it has to do with Jesus' birth, but we're going to be all over the place, and I'm giving you that as a fair warning, Um, so... If you don't want to get paper cuts and stuff, uh, you know, like use your device. But we're going to have the scriptures on the screen, and that way you can follow along. But I'm going to try to go pretty slowly so that way we can piece these things together. It's really significant how all this goes together. These verses go together in this theme of joy. One of the things I notice over the years, you probably notice this too, is how love and joy go together. You ever notice that? Love and joy, they kind of go hand in hand. I'll give you an example. It's really simple. It's a very uh, silly example. But I love to read. And therefore, when I read, I enjoy it. Um, I enjoy watching sports. Why? I love it. They just go hand in hand. I have never in my life, I've been trying to rack my brain. I've never heard this. I've never heard somebody say, oh, I hate reading. I just enjoy it so much. You kind of go, wait, what? We don't enjoy the things we hate. And we generally, if we don't enjoy something, it's not because we love it. So love and joy, they kind of go together. They go hand in hand. You enjoy the things you love and you love the things you enjoy. That's pretty obvious. I remember reading this book uh, by a guy named Henry Skogel. He wrote this in the 17th century. It's a book called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And he wrote this in it, and this was shocking to me. And I thought it was really, really cool. He says, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of that person's love. In other words, if you want to know kind of the character of a person, all you have to do is just evaluate the object of their love. What does that person love most? And you'll get a glimpse of kind of what that person is like. And so if somebody loves money the most, then you can pretty much know that that person might do all kinds of really bad things in order to get more money. You see what I'm talking about? And so you should be cautious of that. But he goes on to say this. He says, the most ravishing pleasures, the most solid and substantial delights that human nature is capable of are those which arise from the endearments of a well-placed and successful affection. We don't use beautiful language like this anymore. But what he's saying is basically this. The most ravishing pleasures that any human being is capable of experiencing is dependent upon what that person loves most. The object of your love determines your pleasure. And if your object of love is greater and greater and greater, then your pleasure in that object is greater and greater and greater. And imagine for a moment if you were to love God above all things. He is the best thing in the entire universe. There is nothing and no one greater than God. So if you were to love God as the object of your affections most, then it means that the enjoyment you get from that love would be the fullest it could possibly be. (laughs) No? Okay. I'll try to convince you by the end of this sermon of why this is significant. This theme in Advent is joy. And what we're going to see in this fourth week of Advent is that joy is ultimately found in God. And the expression of joy is most profoundly, it most profoundly happens through praise. And praise is what we call singing. And so we'll see how we find our greatest joy in God and That joy in God is not complete until we sing it out. And we'll see how these things come together. My favorite carol, and I hate saying favorite. I shouldn't say that. But anyways, it is my favorite. When it comes on, it's like, ooh. Is hark the herald angels sing. We sang it this morning. I love these lines. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. And then the very next line. Joyful, all ye nations rise, join the triumph in the skies. 
there's something about the notion of God and sinners being reconciled in relationship that it produces joy. There's something about that. There's joy to be had in being reconciled to God. My question is, why? Why is there joy to be had in being reconciled to God? We were in this series, obviously, faith, hope, love, and joy. Last week we talked about love. This week we talked about joy. The two go hand in hand. And so what I want to do is review a little bit about what we did last week, about God and sinners being reconciled, if you remember. Remember we talked about how God is love, those three little words, God is love. And we talked about how God makes his love known by sending his one and only son into the world for two reasons. One is to be a propitiation, and secondly, to enable us to live through him. And so we talked a little bit about what propitiation is. Remember, it's a big theological word. It basically means this. All of us are born condemned already. We are under the wrath of God by virtue of our mere existence. However, God in his love has rescued us from condemnation and from his own wrath by sending his own son to be a propitiation, which is to be a sacrifice. That at Jesus' sacrificial death in which his blood was shed, that blood that he shed on the cross is a payment for the forgiveness of sins. And should we believe Jesus and put our trust in Jesus, that his life, death, and resurrection is sufficient in order for us to escape from the wrath of God, then that very wrath of God in which we're all born under is now taken from us and we are rescued out from that predicament. It's real simple what that means, but it's a beautiful truth. And what's really interesting, as I talked about last week, is if you eliminate the wrath of God, you actually diminish the love of God. And what I would say, too, this week is if you get rid of the wrath of God, you actually diminish joy. You lessen people's experience of joy. Because condemnation, the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus rather than on us because he is our propitiation, knowing that Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection everything necessary in order to rescue us from our predicament, all of this, the Apostle Paul says, produces joy. Now, I'm going to read a verse in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll start there. We'll start in verse 8. And many of you know verse 8. It's something that you memorize as a child. You probably have it still memorized. You got your Awana patch from it and all that kind of stuff. So Romans 5 chapter, uh, chapter 5 verse 8. Very famous verse. It reads like this. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a beautiful truth. That's propitiation. Christ died for us, even though we hated God, we were his enemies. But then we're going to continue on reading verses 9 through 11. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's a reference to the resurrection. More than that. More, more than justification, reconciliation, resurrection. Yes, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And what Paul does is he helps us understand, yes, it's true propitiation. Yes, it's true justification. Yes, it's true forgiveness of sins. Yes, it's true uh, resurrection. But more than all that, God did that. For our joy. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. For our joy. Joy is a proper response to reconciliation and redemption. But here's something I want to say. And I'm going to say this is going to shock you all. And you're going to think I'm like, we need to, you know, like throw tomatoes at me and whatnot. But hang tight. I'm going to say this in a shocking way to get your attention because I need you to to feel the weight of this. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross in order to forgive you of your sins. Only. Jesus did not die on the cross to forgive you of your sins only. There's something more Jesus did 
There's something more he was doing. You see, in our culture today, for whatever reason, we have kind of, uh, we've reduced the gospel, we've reduced salvation merely to the explanation, God loves you and he died for you. But we don't actually give people a bigger picture of what salvation actually is. We don't actually take people to the next level. We don't take people to what Jesus died for. There was a purpose behind it greater than just forgiveness of sins. Something else was going on behind it. And we don't necessarily talk about this very often. So I got a mic. I'm going to talk about it. You ready? 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. This is where the apostle Peter is going to reference propitiation. He's going to talk about the fact that Jesus substituted himself in our place. He writes, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that is himself, for the unrighteous, that is you and I. And then what the Apostle Peter is going to write next is there's this little phrase in English. It's that. Sometimes it's translated so that. Whenever you're reading your Bible in English and you see that it says that or so that, you understand that that phrase is a purpose indicator. What it means is whatever comes after the so that is the goal or the end or the purpose for which the thing he said previous is the means or the, or the, or the, the way in which it happens. So you have this happens so that this is the result. You guys tracking? So when you look at the that, now you understand. Okay, so he talked about propitiation. He talked about Jesus dying on the cross. But there's a purpose for it, and it's this. So that he, being Jesus, might bring us to God. So when I said Jesus Christ did not die on the cross in order to forgive you of your sins only, what I mean is this, Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins so that the next step would happen, which is that you will be brought by him to God himself. Now, why that is significant is then when you look back at Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you realize, oh, Jesus' coming and his life, death, and resurrection was Jesus' way, was God's way of sending his son to get rid of everything, every obstacle, every hindrance that would stand between you and your God. He took it away. This is in the way. I got to get rid of that. I want you. This is in the way. Nope, out of the way. I want you. Because... God wants relationship with us. And he sent Jesus to do everything necessary to remove all obstacles hindering that from happening. Now, when you have a relationship with God, what does that mean? We live in America. America is known, even around the world, as being a very uh, individualistic society, which means we think of pretty much ourselves most of the time. And we want to make sure everyone else understands that they need to be thinking about not themselves but us most of the time. And so we're very individualistic. So even in Christianity, even in the churches, we have actually individualized the gospel way beyond where it should be. And so we typically think of, oh, I have my personal relationship with Jesus. Even though that phrase is not found in the Bible anywhere, we, we just tend to say that's what it is. And so what we need to realize is actually having a relationship with God, yes, is between you as an individual with God, but there's another dimension to it. It includes others as well. And the others in salvation, in redemption, are to be considered our brothers and sisters, which tells us this. If I have a relationship with God, it's because I'm a part of his family. And if I have a relationship with God, there's another part about being in his family is I actually receive an inheritance from him. And what that inheritance is, is actually a kingdom that has no end. And so those three components are really, throughout the Bible, are really a, a very prominent themes throughout Scripture, that you can be a part of God's family, you can receive an inheritance or reward from God because of your association in his family, and thirdly, what you're going to experience is the fact that he is the king and you get to live in his kingdom. And those three things are significant. And we find them most explicitly talked about in Colossians chapter 1. Here the Apostle Paul is writing a prayer, and he's giving thanks, it says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Now you notice, 
He has qualified you. God the Father has qualified you, and, and I'll just give it away. In verse 14, the quali- how God the Father has qualified you is through the work of God the Son. Jesus is the one who qualifies you. Now, he qualifies you so that you can receive an inheritance with the saints, which means your inheritance isn't your own little personal niche between you and Jesus where you guys are in your special place or whatever. It's an inheritance which is shared with the saints. Now, what's interesting is many times we look at this inheritance and we often think, oh, yes, it awaits me in heaven. But I want to propose something to you which, which might change the way you view this whole situation. It's an inheritance, yes, we will receive fully in heaven with the saints, but there's also a different dimension, which is we the saints can actually share in it now. And how we, the saints, can share in our inheritance is to realize, remember what Jesus died for? Jesus died in order to what? Bring us to God. Our greatest inheritance is none other than God. So therefore, we as saints inherit God. Now and also more fully and completely in heaven. How do you experience God now? two ways. Individually, yes, you have the presence of God. If you are a Christian, you've repented and believed the gospel, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you experience the presence of God even now. But now you got to remember your Bible, and you remember Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about how we together are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And you have to remember your Bible in 1 Peter chapter 2, where we, like living stones, are being built together into a temple for the Lord. How do we experience the presence of God then? How do we experience our inheritance? Two ways. Individually, you have a relationship with the Lord. Secondly, through the church. Through the church. Because as we gather together, God is in our midst. So here's one of those things. You might need to want to, you know, like go to church. I'm going to say something about that a little bit later. But anyways, verse 13 He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Notice that the kingdom is Jesus' kingdom, and Jesus is beloved of the Father, which means God the Father loves God the Son. And we are being transferred into his kingdom. As Galatians 1.4 talks about, we've been delivered from this present evil age. Um, and we understand from like Hebrews, we are inheriting a kingdom which cannot be shaken. It cannot rot, spoil, or fade. It is kept by God's power in heaven for us. And so when you think about this, you realize, oh, my relationship with God, yes, has a personal dynamic. But it's something that I share with the other saints that we experience at church. Because we are the family of God, these are my brothers and sisters, and now we are anticipating the fullness and the expressed fullness of God's kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. And so we celebrate that together in anticipation for what God is going to do. That is what in part it means to have a relationship with God. And that's why Advent is so important. You see, without the coming of Christ, without Jesus coming, there is no kingdom. There is no inheritance. There is no family. There is no salvation, there is no redemption, no reconciliation, no forgiveness, no eternal life. Without Jesus, we don't have anything. Which means, if we can't make our way to God, we can't do what it takes in order to be with God, we can't work our way up to Him, our only hope is that He comes to us. And the good news is, God has come. How God has come is in Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We remember from John chapter 1. We've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
But then I want to add to this the book of Colossians where the Apostle Paul writes about the coming of Jesus and wants to make sure that we understand who Jesus is. He writes this in verse 19. For in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want you to to notice God was pleased to have the fullness of who he is to come in the person of Jesus. When God saw that we were condemned, it wasn't as if God was like, man, these people, they can't ever get their act together. What's wrong with them? Gosh, annoying. I guess we got to go rescue them. They made a mess. I got to go clean it up. There's no reluctance. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It pleased God for him to come. Therefore, God came for us out of joy. He came for us out of joy. And what God was going to do in Jesus is he's going to reconcile us to himself. God is going to reconcile sinners to himself. But not only that, God was going to reconcile all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth. This is another part of the gospel and another part of salvation that we neglect oftentimes. We think salvation is purely my soul getting saved, blasting out of my earth suit, and now I'm going to go be with God floating like a Michelin baby in the sky or something like that. And we have to realize, no, the Bible describes the new heavens and new earth as a physical, literal place. It's a place in which God is reconciling the natural world to himself. It's a place which is free of sin, no more corruption, no more condemnation, no more distortion. It is perfect, it is pristine, and it's in in every way imaginable. It's exactly as creation was, but better than Eden. God is doing that in the coming of Jesus. And so when you think about Christmas now, and you think about, okay, Jesus came. All right, I know the story, you know, wise men and, you know, angels and all that kind of stuff. Donkeys and he was in a stable, whatever. You have to realize, okay, I I get that we understand that that Jesus came. But you have to understand the purpose for which Jesus came is to do everything we just talked about. God came to reconcile all things to himself. God came so that he can reconcile you to himself and that we would have reconciliation with each other that we would inherit him and that he would be our God and we would be his people. And on and on it goes. So what I want to do is I want to read the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 to make sure that we remember and we want to pack full of meaning this story. We want to pack it full of meaning. It's pregnant with all kinds of beautiful truths. And remember, in those days, a decree went out in this from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there, was, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, as the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
I love this story. But if you pay attention, you'll notice themes here. There's joy. In the midst of this joy and being told about this birth of this child, there's a response. The shepherds go and they want to see if the things they were told by this angel were true. And once they realize it's true, do you see their response? They left glorifying and praising God. What does it mean to praise? Sing. So when the angel showed up, freaked them out. I love verse 10 and 11. My eyes always linger at verse 10 and 11. Kind of stay there for a little while. So let's go there. And the angel said to them, that is the shepherds, fear not. Because you remember when they showed up in all of the glory, the shepherds saw the glory. And they were like, oh, no, we're toast. They probably fell down and thought, we're going to die. There's no way we can live. Because you have to remember, in the presence of such holiness and beauty, you become really, really aware of your sinfulness. In Isaiah 6, you saw it when Isaiah beheld the glory of the Lord. What did he say? Woe is me. I'm toast. And the shepherds felt the same exact way. When you are in the presence of perfect, perfect holiness and that kind of glory, it's so beautiful and so radiant and so majestic, and you behold yourself and you realize, oh, you're done. There's no way I can stand in this kind of presence. And so they are filled with fear. I'm about to die in the presence of this glory. I know my weaknesses. I know my sin. I know my filth. I know my shame. And what I'm seeing in God, <laughs> none of that. I'm toast. And they were scared. They were scared. I'm going to die. But then the angel said, fear not, for behold. Now, whatever comes after the behold is the thing that casts out fear. You're about to die. <laughs> That's how you feel. <laughs> You're experiencing the judgment of God. God judges all unholiness by his holiness. You feel the judgment of God. You feel fearful. I'm going to die. And then they say, don't fear. Behold. They don't say, don't fear. Okay, stand up and go do this stuff. Go act this way, say this stuff, go do all this stuff, and then you won't have fear anymore. Instead, they just say, behold. And whatever it is that comes after the behold is what casts out fear of the judgment of God. They say, or the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Behold, you don't have to fear. We've got good news. It's going to be so joyous. It's for everyone. And you imagine the shepherds going, awesome. But, but what is it? Like, what is the news? <laughs> Are you going to tell us? What, what is the news? What is the joy? What, what is it that's for everyone? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The question isn't, what is the good news or what is the announcement that causes great joy or what is it that is for all people? The question is, who is it? Because the answer is baby Jesus. The answer is the Lord, the Messiah, the King of peace, God in human flesh. God is good news. God is the great joy. God is for all the people. Because in the town of Bethlehem, Jesus is born. Jesus is God. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the great joy. Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the Reconciler. Jesus is the one who satisfies the wrath of God. Are you getting the point? So, to make it crystal clear, the good news, the gospel... It's Jesus. It's Christ. Now, what's really interesting is when you read throughout the Bible, you'll notice that redemption, reconciliation, and joy, they all go together. They go hand in hand. In fact, you will rarely, and I still haven't found one, I, I, where you'll rarely see where redemption or reconciliation is talked about, which isn't immediately followed by some expression of joy. 
You just can't find it. Or at least maybe you can't. I haven't yet. Now what's important to understand is the difference between redemption and reconciliation because they're two different things. Redemption has the idea of purchasing something. And so we have been purchased, those of us who are Christians, repented and believing in the gospel, we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And that blood of Jesus actually purchases us so that we are God's. He, he owns us. We are his. But reconciliation is a little bit different. Reconciliation has a relational dimension. What it means is that there's been a breach or a brokenness between two people. But reconciliation is that that brokenness has now been mended and now the people are brought together in relationship. So when you talk about redemption or reconciliation or both, you'll understand that they go together with joy. That is why Romans 5.11, we already read this, but Paul says more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation became the source of the joy. And we see this throughout Scripture, especially, I think, in Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, where the prophet Isaiah writes this about redemption and reconciliation. He said, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. Not God gives me salvation. God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation with joy. You all, this plural there, will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now we know salvation is a reference to God and drawing water is an image to having life. And so what he says is with joy you will draw life from God. With joy you'll do that. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And you see them contemplating God's judgment, God's anger and wrath. It's been taken away by who? By God himself. So that God is our salvation, casting out fear. And the expression is, my goodness, I'm going to draw life from God, joyfully so. I'm going to sing about it. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the great joy. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our redemption, is our reconciliation, is our life. Everything is about Jesus. In other words, God is the gospel. God is the good news. God is our salvation. God is our joy. Now, I remember reading this book some time ago, and this, this author asked this question, and my goodness, it's one of those questions I wish I would have never read. He asked this question. Would you be happy in heaven if God were not there? If you had everything that we typically think of heaven, which is like joy and you get to see loved ones and no more death and no more pain and no more sorrows, you got all of that. But God wasn't there. Would you still want to go? And would you be happy being there even if God wasn't there? I don't know about you, but that's a thought-provoking question. And then the author goes on and he says, propitiation, redemption, forgiveness, imputation, sanctification, liberation, healing, heaven. None of these things are good news except for one reason. They bring us to God for our everlasting enjoyment of him. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is the way to get people to God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. If we believe all these things have happened to us, propitiation, redemption, and the like, but do not embrace them for the sake of getting to God, they have not happened to us. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything and everything above him. 
I don't know if you understand that concept, but I think it's really serious. If Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins in order to bring us to God, that we might be redeemed and reconciled to God, be put in right relationship with God, being admitted into his family, receiving an inheritance in the kingdom that will not spoil, rot, or fade. And God did it. He is our salvation. He is our redemption. He is everything. He is the good news. He is the gospel. He is the joy. He is everything. And yet we choose to put other things and other people above God, treasuring them above God, we have every reason in the world to ask the question, am I actually saved? Now, an illustration I think will help. Imagine that you have a married couple who have been having marital issues, husband and wife, they cannot get along, and the only solution that they can understand is divorce is out of the question, and so they're like, man, we have to separate. And so through some counsel, they decide that they're going to live separately, and so the husband and wife live in different towns, perhaps, they live in different houses, and they don't speak to each other, and just things are just not going really well. Some time passes, and perhaps you encounter one or both of the people in this couple, and and you come to them and you say, hey, you know, I've been praying for you. Have, you. have you guys reconciled? And then they reply, yeah, actually we have. Thanks for praying. It's, it's totally good now. And you're like, wow, amazing. Tell me about that. And they say, yeah, yeah, I got my house and, and they have theirs. Um, we got, you know, our own bank accounts now. Um, the kids will come to our house and, and then go to their house. And we rarely ever talk. And everything's just really, really good. You have every reason to stop and go, um, do you know what the word reconciliation means? <laughs> and so if God has come to reconcile himself with sinners and we continue to put anything and everything above him and we prefer those things above him, we have every reason in the world to stop and ask ourselves the question, do do I know what that word reconciliation actually means? Have I, have I actually been reconciled? You see, if God is the point and you don't want anything to do with God, something's off. Here's another question for you. This is a fun thought experiment. You're going to giggle and I know it. Have you ever thought about this? Okay, what if we do get to heaven and we do, we are reconciled to God and we're put in right relationship with God and we get to experience him. The new heavens and new earth, heaven is described. God actually says dwelling, the dwelling place of God is with man. God wants to dwell with us. And what if we get there and we're dwelling with God and we find out, oh no, God is not happy. What would you do if you were to find out God is not happy? Like he's just not a happy person. Like he's cranky. And he's just like a curmudgeon. And you're just like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. <laughs> By and large, we don't really enjoy unhappy people. You know what I'm talking about? And in our Christmas movies, we all know this, there's always that one character who's like the Grinch or that one character, Ebenezer Scrooge, who isn't happy, isn't kind, no one wants to be around them until something happens and then in the end, everyone's gathered around the Christmas tree singing carols, right? We want to be with them after they've become happy. But we don't necessarily want to spend time with unhappy people. What if God was unhappy? What if God were just a crank? Heaven would be miserable, just miserable. I got to spend eternity with the most powerful being in the universe who is also just a crank. Oh, my gosh. You and I would not enjoy that experience at all, which always baffles me. I used the word earlier. It, it's a befuddling that people who don't love God, don't like God, don't believe in God, don't want anything to do with God are so certain that they're still going to heaven. 
and sometimes I just stop and I go, hey, look, look, look. Just think about this for a second. You're going to go spend eternity with a person you hate. And he's the most powerful person in the universe. Okay, if you were to go to heaven and be with the most miserable person in your experience, that isn't heaven. That's called hell. So if God's not happy, there's no good news. (laughs) Good news, everyone. God sent Jesus to die for you so you can be in relationship with him, and he's always perpetually unhappy. What? But, brothers and sisters, what if God is happy? What if God were the happiest being in the universe? And since God is infinite, if he were to be happy, then he would be happy infinitely so. And if God were happy, being God, that means he's eternal, his happiness would have no end. And so if you had God who is happy, he would be infinitely happy, which means he has unbounded energy to continue to be happy, and nothing can stop him from being happy. And he will have this unbounded energy to be happy forever since he never grows weary. He's eternal. If God is happy, he is the infinite happy God eternally existing. And if he's that happy and he's made us to be in relationship with him, then part of his happiness is in us enjoying his happiness. And if we enjoy his happiness, which is infinite and also eternal, then that means him being an infinite God, eternally so, we being finite, are going to have in his happiness our greatest joy fulfilled. So we get to delight ourselves being with God who is infinitely happy, unbounded energy to display his happiness for our enjoyment, ever increasingly so, forever and ever, you and I every day will wake up, woo, more happy than yesterday. If he's happy. (laughs) Lots at stake. So is God happy. We can't just say, well, I would like him to be happy, therefore he must be happy. No, 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 no. God has revealed himself, so we have to go here. Is God happy? Oh, yes, he is. First Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is going to use a word which is an adjective. It's translated in English as the word blessed, but it comes from the Greek word makarios, which means happy. And God is, excuse me, Paul is going to apply that adjective to God twice. And it's the only time, those two times, the only place in the Bible where it's ever applied to God. Which means Paul is doing this on purpose to help us understand what God is like. Look at this, verse 11. Paul writes the gospel, that is the good news of the glory. The glory is, uh, the glory of God is his infinite worth. So Paul writes the good news of the infinite worth of the happy God. Part of Paul's thinking is the infinite worth of God is expressed in the infinite happiness of God. In other words, what makes God so valuable and worthy to us is that God is infinitely and eternally happy. And since God is infinitely and eternally happy and we see his worth and value because of that, Paul says, that is good news. That's gospel. In other words, we preach the gospel by declaring you sinners can be reconciled to a happy God. And in being reconciled to a happy God, you will find your fullest joy. (laughs) 1 Timothy 6, verse 15. Paul writes, and this is a benediction of sorts, the end of his letter. He says, who is the, referring to God, is the blessed, the happy, and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God alone is the happy God. 
and we see part of God's glory in his infinite happiness. And if God is infinitely and eternally happy, then we being made in his image and being reconciled to him, Jesus died that we would have forgiveness of sins to be brought to God. Our coming to God is for us to enjoy his happiness. <laughs> Man, do you see now why I get irritated when, when we ignore emotion in our salvation? And why I ignore the, why I hate when people ignore theology? Brothers and sisters, it's both. God, theology is happy. Okay, why is this even important? It's important, as we know, Jesus is truly human. We get that. He was born as a human being. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that. He was born flesh and blood. We also know Jesus is truly God. We read that in Colossians 1. We also know from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that he is the radiance of God's glory. In other words, that when you see Jesus, you see God. When you see Jesus, you see God. And you see God's glory in Jesus. And so that we know that. But I want to show you how the Father delights in God the Son. So Matthew chapter 17. This is what's called the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, verse 1. And leads them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. He was transformed before them. How so? Here's how. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. <laughs> if you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him Jesus takes the disciples up to a high mountain and for a moment he peels back his humanity and his glory radiates the disciples go oh this is good. <laughs> and then out of a cloud comes God the Father who speaks of God the Son. And he says this, this Jesus is my son and I love him. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. God loves and delights in his son. Which means God the Father loves and delights in God the Son. And we know from Scripture that God the Son loves and delights in the Father. So the three persons of the Trinity are continually enjoying loving each other. And from the love they get from each other, they are filled with, and not filled because they already are joy, but they, they have this expression of joy. So they are joyfully loving and lovingly joyful about their relationship with each other. And think about the implications of this, brothers and sisters. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, who's the third person of the Trinity. Which means the Holy Spirit who loves to delight in the Father and Son and who rejoices in the love of the Father and the Son is living in you. Which means you get to experience the divine love and the divine joy that is between the Trinity. Shockingly, Jesus invites you to that experience. Uh, what? John 15, verse 11. Peter, or excuse me, Jesus says to the disciples, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Not only that, but John 17, 26, I made known to them your name, Jesus prays to God the Father. I will continue to make it known so that my love or the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus' desire is for us to experience the fullness of joy and the fullness of love by having the divine joy and divine love given to us to be experienced. Now, how that is experienced is through, right now, through the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
But when Jesus returns and we get our resurrected, glorified bodies, we will see him as he is. And we will no longer uh, wait for that full expression. We will get the fullness of joy right then and there because God will be before our eyes. But also think about the church dimension. If the Holy Spirit is bringing us together and building us to be a dwelling place for God, how else do we experience love and joy? The church. So if we neglect to come to church, you just have to, I'll be blunt, you are just intentionally forfeiting joy and love. Football, joy and love. I'm trying to keep it real, y'all. <laughs> and if we always choose football or what have you over gathering with the saints to experience the joy and love of God, might we want to consider the question, have you really been reconciled? You tracking with me, church? Now, when we're brought to God, what should we expect? What should we expect about being brought to God? My favorite verse in the Bible, <laughs> Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, who sits at the right hand of God the Father? Jesus. Jesus is our pleasure forevermore. And if you are brought into the presence of God, you are brought into the fullness of joy. And being brought into the fullness of joy, you get to experience the fullness of Jesus, who is our pleasure forevermore. This kind of redemption is such a profound thing that it causes people to just rejoice and to sing. And so the question was, is God happy? And I would say emphatically, yes. But also, I want to show you what God is like, Zephaniah 3.17. Also, one of my favorite texts. I should never say favorite. You know how that works. Anyway, favorite. It's like a favorite kid. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Zephaniah 3.17. And what we're going to see is this is your God. Golden Hills Community Church, behold your God. Verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He quiets you. All the fears, all the pain, guilt, shame, he quiets you with his love. And then there's a volcano. And he will exult not exalt with an A, which means to lift up into prominence, but exalt with a U, which is the proclamation vocally. God will exult over you with loud singing. <laughs> we have a singing God. And the way he's described is not just that God sings, he sings loudly. And he sings over us, not because we're awesome, but he sings over us because his son, whom he loves and delights in, has come to our rescue. And through Jesus, he is reconciling us to himself. And so the glory that is happening is God the Father rejoicing in God the Son for ransoming us. And since we by faith are now found in Jesus, what is said of Jesus is true of us. With you I am well pleased. So God is rejoicing over you because you are in Jesus. And that rejoicing is a love rejoice and exulting. There is loud singing. There is exuberance. God is not holding anything back. His infinite, eternal joy on display. He is for you. And Jesus came to remove every obstacle so that God would make his way to us so that we would have him and that we would have joy. <laughs> this is too good to be true. <laughs> but remember, joy is not complete until it is expressed. 
you got to express this kind of joy. Not because you have to. It's kind of like husbands and wives, you've got to tell each other that you love each other. Not because you have to, but you have to. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not that kind of have to, but have to. The reality is this. If you have a loved one and you know it just makes them tick, you know what brings a smile to their face, and it's Christmas time, and you find that gift, you know that gift, and you're thinking, this is perfect, and you get that gift, like in March, and you're thinking, i got to hide this thing, and you wrap that sucker in like July, <laughs> and then in November you tell your loved one, I can't wait for Christmas, what I got you, you're never going to, oh, it's going to be so good, and they're like, it's November 28th, like, are you serious? This is too much. And the joy and excitement that you have in this gift, it, you're just bottling it in. That's why loved ones, we're terrible at keeping secrets about gifts that we know are really good. It has to get out. And then when we give the gift Christmas morning and you're watching your loved one and, they're, and you're like, come, just, just yank it, pull, pull, take it, take it off. You know what I'm saying? You're just like, haste, let's go, let's go. Because you're so excited, your joy that you feel, you want to express it, but you know I can't express it until they express their joy. And so when they open up the box, it's not indifference that we're waiting for. Thank you. <laughs> what we want is box opened. <laughs> you remembered, and you're like, yeah, I did. <laughs> And you see the joy of your loved one just take it. Hold oh, I can't believe it. And you're thinking, yeah. And your joy is in their joy because they're enjoying your gift. And God is glorified when we enjoy his gift. His gift is Jesus. But the joy won't be complete until that joy is expressed. It has to get out. It has to get out. And how we as Christians get our joy of reconciliation with God out is through praising. It's through singing. And I know some of you don't like to sing. You got to get over that. <laughs> We're going to do that for a really long time, like, you know, forever. Let me take you back to Isaiah, and let's close with this, because, brothers and sisters, I want you to see the cause of the gospel and how it wells up with joy. Some of you have noticed I love praying, and I love, I love ending my prayers for God's glory and our joy, because I know that God is most glorified, as John Piper has taught us. He is most glorified. God is most glorified when we enjoy him above all things. Listen to this in Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Paul quotes this in Romans 10 to talk about sharing the gospel. How beautiful it is to preach the gospel. And what kind of gospel are we preaching? We're publishing peace. We're bringing good news of happiness. That's why I can't understand if Christians are always dour. Hmm. Get over yourself, Eeyore. Look to God. <laughs> and then look at the response. Verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, Jerusalem, Zion. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Which is symbolic of the people of God. God has redeemed us. He's comforted us. Lift up your voices. For God has come. Father, thank you for coming. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our rescuer. Thank you for Jesus who is the gospel. He is the good news. He is our great joy, and he is for all people. Lord, we know from Revelation 5 that it is by the blood of Jesus that you are ransoming people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And God, it is our responsibility as the church to go and to publish this good news of great joy. It is our responsibility 
to go and to spread the gospel to make the nations glad. And so God, fill our church with that inexpressible and glorious joy. And God, even now I pray, strengthen us as we end our service with singing as an expression of getting that joy out to the mountains we go. So God, be with us as we go for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.